Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. Also streaming worldwide at forwardradio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 353. Today's topic is Latin America Update. So why are we talking about Latin America on the Climate Report? And specifically, we're talking about Latin America, the the Latin America foreign policy of the United States. So why are we talking about this? Well, foreign policy, not least of all with Latin America, involves important questions of how we are governed and by whom we are governed. And climate also involves these same important questions about how we're governed and by whom we're governed. It's important to know the truth about that. It's important to sort it all out. It's important for our understanding to be rooted in historical fact as opposed to ahistorical nonsense that we get both in school and in the media. Another reason it's important to talk about U.S. foreign policy is that the purpose of our trade regime slash military slash security state is to preserve our unfair advantage on the world stage, whereby we in the U.S. can consume 25% of the world's resources, yet we're only 5% of the world's population. That unfair advantage it comes largely to us through trade deals, but the military is there to back up the trade deals, and it's always gunboat diplomacy, especially when you're dealing with small countries such as most of the countries in Latin America. Another reason we're talking about this on the Climate Report is that it involves trade deals that are pro-U.S. or pro-U.S. corporations, and they're anti-everyone else. They're anti you and me, they're anti the people of other countries. And as such, they create huge inefficiencies. For example, when Haiti, when Haitians go unemployed or work for slave wages because they can't compete in a rigged market for rice, or Mexicans cannot compete in a rigged market for corn, then this creates gross inefficiencies where it's much more expensive from a monetary standpoint. It's much more expensive from the standpoint of fossil fuels. There are social costs that go along with these you know, grossly inefficient and unfair trade deals. So that's another reason we're talking about this on the Climate Report. Now, as a little bit of background, the Charter of the United Nations which was adopted in the late 1940s, right after World War II, the United States, Soviet Union, China, England, France, all in all the countries of the world, most almost all the countries of the world signed on to the Treaty of the United Nations, the Charter of the United Nations. It's a treaty which becomes part of our Constitution by virtue of the fact that we adopted it. I mean, it becomes federal law by virtue of the fact that we adopted it, because the Constitution says treaties are the law of the land. So this treaty, the UN Charter, says all members, that includes us, all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. So we're not supposed to use force against the territorial integrity of another state, and we're not supposed to use force 
against the political independence of any state. Furthermore, we're not even supposed to threaten to use force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state, and yet we do that every day. There's never been a day when we have not done that. The use of force and the threat of force is inherent in all of our military installations, in our presence of, you know, the the military and the CIA in collaboration with the so-called security forces of these little countries. But in this episode, we're going to see many, many instances where we violate this treaty. We're, you know, we're using force and we're threatening force against other countries, specifically those in Latin America. So let me share with you a post that I wrote the other day. It says there's good stuff going on in Latin America right now. Lula da Silva elected, was elected the president of Brazil, defeating Jair Bolsonaro, self-styled Captain Chainsaw. So Lula da Silva uh, is the, I hate using left and right, but just for shorthand, Lula da Silva is the leftist, the socialist, the pro-people candidate in Brazil, and Jair Bolsonaro was the conservative and pro-U.S., and, but he was defeated by a relatively narrow margin, but he was defeated by Lula da Silva. Lula da Silva had been president previously in uh, Brazil, and this is the first time in recent Brazilian history that an incumbent has been defeated. So despite the fact that Bolsonaro had outspent Lula 300 to 1 in campaign spending. I heard that from a reliable source that was being interviewed on Ben Norton's show. Continuing to read, Brazil is a huge country with nearly half the population and half the geographic area of Latin America. So out of all of Latin America, including South America and Central America, Brazil has nearly half of the population and nearly half of the geographic area. So a shift in the Brazilian presidency from the oligarchs to the people, that is, Bolsonaro representing the oligarchs, Lula representing the people, so a shift from the president of the presidency from the oligarchs to the people sends a wave throughout Latin America. Now, Lula has served as president previously, and when he served as president, he had organized the International Coalition and Trade Alliance, known as BRICS. BRICS is an acronym. It stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And there are other countries wanting to join, including Iran and Saudi Arabia. What this does is it poses a credible threat to U.S. hegemony. Hegemony is another word for empire. It means kind of spreading your tentacles far and wide. It means having influence almost everywhere. And we Americans need to know how much we pay for this empire. It doesn't, it's not free, and it doesn't primarily benefit us. It primarily benefits the people who own stocks on Wall Street. So, like Michael Parenti says, the republic pays for the empire. The republic is you and me, the people, the democracy. We pay for the empire, 
and then the empire goes to benefit the very rich. In related news, Gustavo Petro, the new center-left president of Colombia, whom some of us have doubted, visited Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro in Caracas, Venezuela. So when Colombian President Petro visited Venezuelan President Maduro, they posed in front of a portrait of Simón Bolívar, the liberator of most of South America, the liberator of what was then the Spanish-held portions of South America. So that includes Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia. But Simón Bolívar in the early 1800s, this was when Thomas Jefferson was president, when when, uh, James Madison was president, when James Monroe was president, and when John Quincy Adams was president. It could have lasted all the way into Andrew Jackson's presidency. But the fact that Gustavo Petro, the president of Colombia, and Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, are posing with each other, shaking hands in front of a full-scale portrait of Simone Bolivar, is uh, intentionally symbolic. It is fraught with symbolism because it's like Bolivar was the anti-imperialist liberator of South America. These Latin American countries, for time immemorial, have been trying to throw off the yoke of empire. And it was the Spanish Empire, and then it was the British Empire, and now it's the U.S. Empire. So when Petro and Maduro stand in front of a portrait of Simón Bolivar, they're saying, take note, U.S., we are anti-imperialists here. So historically, Colombia has been America's henchman in the area, uh, America's junior gangster. Topping, uh, Colombia was topping the list of countries receiving aid, quote-unquote aid. And aid can mean many things. It's often not human, humanitarian aid. It might be military aid. It might be aid to the security forces, which is generally anti-population, anti-people. So Colombia topped the list of countries receiving aid, that is, pro-corporate support for the brutal anti-civil rights and anti-labor security state in Colombia. Edward Herman was a co-author of Noam Chomsky's classic Manufacturing Consent, and Herman showed a correlation between the amount of aid received, and the brutality of practices. So the countries like Colombia that received the most aid had the most brutal brutal practices and anti-labor type of activity. And the countries that received the least so-called aid had the least brutal uh, pro-business anti-labor practices. So as partly as a result of all this, former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez had called Colombia the Israel of Latin America, probably referring to their mercenary status, a militaristic country for hire to do the U.S.'s violent and illegal bidding in the region. The former Colombian President Ivan Duque had been a U.S. puppet and had immediately recognized fake Venezuelan President Juan Guaido, who despite never having run for president, let alone elected, was recognized by the U.S. as the legitimate president. 
Now, Juan Guaido is what most of us say is the fake president of Venezuela, and Nicolas Maduro is the real president of Venezuela, the successor to Hugo Chavez, but it wasn't the real president, but rather the fake president of Venezuela that received a rousing, standing ovation in the United States Congress in Trump's State of the Union address from, say, 2019. No, that was 2020. Trump's State of the Union address in 2020. Nicolas Maduro received a a rousing standing ovation from both parties. It was bipartisan support for this illegal, you know, gangster by the name of Juan Guaido, who is pretending to be the president of Venezuela, even though he's hardly recognized as such by anybody, by anybody but a handful of countries. And you might call this handful a rogue minority of countries including the Biden administration, which still recognizes Guaido, not Maduro, as the president of Venezuela. Now, speaking of Venezuela, we need to talk about sanctions. Sanctions are these, like, trade embargoes, like we've had a trade embargo against Cuba for 60 years, the entire world voting almost unanimously, voting at the rate of 96% in the United Nations, the entire world wants us to lift up, lift the embargo on Cuba. Because it's not just saying we, the United States, are not going to trade with Cuba, but anybody who trades with us cannot trade with Cuba. Anybody who trades with Cuba cannot trade with us. And that's been going on for 60 years. It's illegal. It's, it's pointless. It is against the interest of the people of Cuba. It's against the interest of the people of the United States. It's against the interest of many other peoples in the world. And the same type of embargo is going on against Venezuela. So I'm going to show you some a reliable report of some real casualties that have been going on as a result of trade sanctions. And this is a report by very reputable economist Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia. And this is from April 2019. This is for the, from the Center for Economic Policy and Research. And the headline reads, Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment, the Case of Venezuela. So it says this paper looks at some of the most important aspects of the economic sanctions imposed on Venezuela by the U.S. government since August of 2017. It finds that most of the impact of these sanctions has not been on the government, but on the civilian population. The sanctions reduced the public's caloric intake, increased disease and mortality for both adults and infants, and displaced millions of Venezuelans who fled the country as a result of worsening economic depression and hyperinflation. They exacerbated Venezuela's economic crisis and made it nearly impossible to stabilize the economy, contributing further to excess deaths. In other words, people are dying because of these policies. 
All of these impacts disproportionately harmed the poorest and most vulnerable Venezuelans. Says even more severe and destructive than the broad economic sanctions of August 2017 were the sanctions imposed by executive order on January 28, 2019 and subsequent executive orders this year and the recognition of a parallel government which, as shown below, created a whole new set of financial and trade sanctions that are even more constricting than the executive orders themselves. Now, here's the key paragraph. It says, We find that the sanctions have inflicted and increasingly inflict very serious harm to human life and health, including an estimated more than 40,000 deaths from 2017 to 2018. Repeat, 40,000 deaths from 2017 to 2018 as a result of the U.S. imposed sanctions that are illegal and are acts of war and that fall primarily on the people, uh, average people of Venezuela. So it says these sanctions would fit the definition of collective punishment of the civilian population as described in both the Geneva and Hague International Conventions to which the U.S. is a signatory. They are also illegal under international law and treaties that the U.S. has signed and would appear to violate U.S. law as well. This is why we were talking about the United Nations Charter earlier. It says, All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. So are these sanctions uh, in violation of the territorial integrity of Venezuela? You bet they are. Are these sanctions in violation of the political independence of Venezuela? Yes, you bet they are. These are war crimes. These are international crimes. These are crimes under international law. And the only reason Americans are not being convicted is because we don't submit to international law. This is nothing to be proud of. The fact that we will not submit to international law is a strong indication that we have no principles, because if we had principles, we wouldn't run into trouble under international law. We have the resources to take care of our own needs and take care of our own business without constantly meddling in the affairs of other countries of the world and impoverishing other people in other countries, as well as impoverishing Americans, because we are paying for all the infrastructure that it takes to maintain this trade regime. Which brings me to a couple of polls in recent years. It says, according to a 2013 Win-Gallup poll, most countries said the United States is the greatest threat to world peace. So we're always giving this lip service to being the guardians and defenders of peace and democracy and prosperity. But most countries said the United States is the greatest threat to world peace in a 2013 Gallup poll. And in a 2017 Pew Research poll found that a, no a record number of people in 30 surveyed nations saw U.S. power and influence as a quote-unquote major threat. 
2017 Pew Research poll found that a record number of people in 30 nations surveyed saw U.S. power and influence as a major threat. So if democracy means anything, it should mean that we allow other people in other countries to weigh in on whether we want and whether they want us to have this overarching, threatening role in world affairs. According to these two polls, most countries think that, I don't know what it means by countries there, surely it means maybe a majority of people within each particular country, but it says most countries said the United States is the greatest threat to peace, and then 2017 Pew Research poll a record number of people in 30 surveyed nations saw the U.S. and power and influence as a major threat. So they feel threatened by U.S. power and influence. They don't feel comfy or cozy as a result of U.S. power and influence. There's nothing legitimate about this. It's nothing to be proud of. It is very expensive in terms of blood and treasure. Of course, you don't see reports of these polls in the news because the news exists to support the interests of the people who own the news and sponsor the news. Last week we looked at the National Defense Strategy, a document from the White House which was published on October 12, 2022. And this publication of the Biden administration says, in part, the United States will continue to defend democracy around the world, even as we continue to do work at home, whether yada yada nonsense, but even as we continue to do the work at home to better live up to the idea of America enshrined in our founding documents. In other words, it's saying, hey, we're not perfect. We never claimed to be perfect. But the point is that we're not defending democracy in the world. Show me once in history when we defended democracy in the world, and you might be able to find something back in the early 1940s. Other than that, it's pretty much we don't defend democracy. We defend the interests of U.S. corporations. If this Gallup poll is to be believed, and if this Pew Research poll is to be believed, people in other countries don't consider us a guardian or a defender. They consider us a threat. It says here in the National Defense Strategy, we will continue to invest in boosting American competitiveness globally. Drawing dreamers and strivers from around the world, we will partner with any nation that shares our basic belief that the rules-based order must remain the foundation for global peace and prosperity. Let's look at that line. We will partner with any nation that shares our basic belief that the rules-based order, what's that? The rules-based order must remain the foundation for global peace and prosperity. Notice that they used the ter term rules-based order. They did not use the term international law, and they did not th use the term rule of law, because the rule of law would, would mean something. The rule of law would have independent legal meaning, and the word international law has independent legal meaning. Rules-based order is just something that U.S. foreign policy establishment made up. 
And they continue to talk about this rules-based order, which is meaningless. It does not have any legal meaning. It does not have any logical meaning. If we wanted something with logical meaning, we would use words like the rule of law or international law. But then that would require that we be subjected to things like the world court, like the international uh, court of justice. If there were such thing as a rule of law, and if there were such thing as international law uh, that was enforceable against the United States, then Americans would have been convicted many times over, not least of all in the past 30 years. Do you know why we don't obey the rule of law? Because the purpose of a system is what it does. The purpose of the United States government is to throw money at rich people. That's what it does. So you judge its purpose by what it does instead of by the rhetoric or by, by the good intentions. Let me show you what I mean. This is from George F. Kennan, who was Under Secretary of State under Dean Acheson. This goes back to the Truman administration. And he says, we have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. In this situation, we cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our national security. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreaming, and our attention will have to be concentrated everywhere on our immediate national objectives. We need not deceive ourselves that we can afford today the luxury of altruism and world benefaction. In other words, it's saying we're not going to be do we're not going to be do-gooders here. We have half the world's wealth and only 6.3% of the population. If you do the math, it probably ends up being about seven times the uh, the average American would have seven times the wealth of the average person elsewhere in the world. So George F. Kennan says, our real task, not like our make-believe task, but our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships that will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. In other words, disparity meaning unequalness. There is a great disparity between the wealth that we have and the wealth that other countries have. So let's not be do-gooders here. We need not deceive ourselves that we can afford today the luxury of altruism and world benefaction. Translation, we don't, we're not going to have any principles other than the principle of we get to keep what we've taken. Which reminds one of the quote by G.K. Chesterton, My country, right or wrong, is like saying my mother, drunk or sober. Oh, look at the time. See you next time. This has been the Climate Report on Forward Radio.